Uh, speaking of all of that, earlier this year, uh, we started into the book of Joshua. And uh, Joshua is the book about Israel moving into the land that God had promised to them, uh, the land that God had promised to Abraham that he would give to this people. And so the book of Joshua covers their entry into that land, wars, fighting, settling the land. Then we moved into the book of Judges, so seamlessly. And the book of Judges really covers what I would consider, and I think many others, one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. Uh, sin upon sin, everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. And yet, throughout all of the darkness that Israel was dealing with, um, God was faithful. Time and time again, He raised up a deliverer, someone to help Israel to navigate through. His faithfulness showed through time and time again. And that really, in some senses, culminates, or at least I think the biblical authors want us to see it culminate in the story of Ruth. And the story of Ruth, which we just finished a couple of weeks ago, is, is this story of this Moabite woman, a foreigner, now in the land of Israel. Uh, she doesn't have a place, but God finds a place for her. And through Ruth, this widow, this foreigner, God would, God would supply the Messiah ultimately. And we see that she has a son named Obed, and Obed has Jesse, Jesse has David. She is immediately plunged into this again, just declaring to us and shouting to us, God, Yahweh is faithful. So the question is, where do we go from Ruth? Uh, how far do we continue in this? And for now, I'm just going to say, we're going to start into Samuel. I make no promises that we're going to get all the way through the book of 1 Samuel, but there are some key characters, some key stories that I want to introduce you to as we think through Samuel. One, you have Samuel himself, which we'll talk about today. Saul, the first king of Israel. David, uh, the most well-known king of Israel. And I'm hoping that maybe we can get through and get started into the life of David uh, by the time uh, Advent and Christmas rolls around. But the book of Samuel begins in desperation. And if you've been around for Joshua, Judges, or Ruth, you understand that's normal for Israel. Desperation is Israel's middle name. Uh, but this time, the desperation isn't the nation really as a whole, at least as pointed out, or a particular tribe. It's one woman. One woman's desperation. Her name is Hannah. And uh, Hannah is very troubled. And we're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, and we're going to read uh, several verses here to get us started and dig into her story. And I'm about to butcher uh, these names in this opening verse. So get ready for that. There was a certain man uh, of Ramathame, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. This is Elkna. Had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, uh, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. I always want to say Panini. So if that comes out, you know, Panini, just go with it. You know who I'm talking about on that name. Uh, now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to uh, Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. 
And therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why do you weep and, and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And they had eaten, after they had eaten and drank in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said this, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Well, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking of my great anxiety and vexation. Well, then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Notice verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. In these opening verses, we learn much about Hannah's life. She's married to Elkanah. They're from Ephraim. And of course, Elkna has another wife. We've got to add some drama into the story. Her name is Penina. She has children, but Hannah does not. And that's how the story begins. That's the drama that's created. There's a desperation in Hannah. She wants a child. I failed to mention, and you might have picked it up in the context, that Penina is a real jerk. She twists the knife in Hannah that she has kids, and Hannah does not. Time and time again, this is a conversation they have. And so once again, as we've already noted a few times this year, we see that barren women play a key role in God's redemptive story. Go back to Abraham and Sarah, to Rachel and Jacob, to Samson, his mom, Hannah now, Elizabeth as we move into the New Testament. I like how one commentator put it. He said this, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. And with that being said, let's pray before we dig in. Father, thank you so much that we can come before you unable. That's who we are. Without you, we're, we're nothing. Our efforts are nothing. And so I pray that today you will do a great thing through our inability that your grace will show through the sermon today, through the text, uh, through the words that are said, that we will receive them as well. And Lord, you will, you will change us and mold us. Thank you for these truths. Help me now to clearly communicate them, we pray in Jesus' name. So every year, Elkna would take his family, it seems the whole family, to Shiloh. 
where the high priest Eli, his sons Hopni and Phinehas, uh, serve at the tabernacle. And in verse 7, the author clues us in that for Elkna, this happens year after year. This isn't just something they occasionally do. And I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you, and there's a lot that's coming at this point, but all of this will come into play as we work through these opening chapters in 1 Samuel today. Uh, so those names are important to note. But Elkna seems to be a pretty good guy, seems to be a pretty noble guy. He goes faithfully every year to, to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices. He brings his family for this to participate in worship. Remember, this is during some dark days in Israel. And so Elkna seems to be one of the faithful ones to Yahweh with consistency. And just to set this in better context for you, I did say tabernacle. Uh, the temple has not yet been built. This is pre-David, pre-Solomon. Jerusalem has not yet been uh, uh, captured for the sake of Israel. There are Jebusites that live there during this particular time. And so the tabernacle, that makeshift uh, worship center that traveled with Israel, is their uh, temple for the time being, and it's set in Shiloh, this particular town. And so Elkna and them travel to this particular place. Uh, he gives his family of the offering. He offers double portion to Hannah. Despite her barrenness, Elkna loves his wife. And in verse 80, he attempts to comfort her. He says, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And, and why is your heart so sad? Am I not better than ten sons? And, I, you know, you read that, that might be a little conceited. I don't know. Uh, but he seems to think pretty highly of himself. But he's, he's trying to comfort his wife that, that we don't need kids. I have you, you have me. Well, after feasting in Shiloh one year, Hannah gets up and goes to the tabernacle where she finds a place to pray. She fervently prays this particular prayer. You can see it in verse 11 again. O Yahweh of hosts, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. You give me a son, he's yours. Even at the end here, this Nazarite vow that you may remember that we pulled in from the story of Samson in the summer. Well, Eli, the high priest, is perched outside of the tabernacle and he's, he's noticing Hannah and he's noticing that her mouth is moving but, but no words are coming out. And I'll just say this at this point, Eli is not a very good judge of character. He's not a very good judge of action. We're going to see that play out in the story. But he thinks, this woman's drunk. She's here at the tabernacle and she's drunk. And so he goes and he rebukes her. Well, Hannah explains the situation. And uh, using words like vexation, anxiety, I want to I pull out some of these words that Hannah describes herself. Uh, bitter weeping, deep anguish, misery, being deeply troubled. And after Eli understands the circumstances, it seems he gets a prophetic word. And in verse 17, he says this, Go in peace, and the God of Israel shall grant your petition that you have made to him. We don't even know if he knows what the petition was, but he do, does know that the, the, the petition will be answered. And so Hannah gets up, she eats, she puts a smile back on her face, and they return home. And after a short time, she has a son and names him Samuel. Samuel means this literally, his name is God. But in the Hebrew, it's close enough for Hannah to, to have it mean something along these lines that is probably in most of your translations. Because I asked the Lord for him. This child is a gift from God. So let's talk a little bit about Samuel. Verse 19 through 21 reveals that after Samuel is weaned, uh, 
I don't know the age. There's so many uh, different variations on that. Maybe around the age of five. But Hannah takes him along with, with provisions to Shiloh. And she leaves him there. She drops him off now under the care of, of Eli, the high priest. Uh, they offer sacrifices. She has a conversation with Eli and says, Do, do you remember me? Uh, I'm the one who was praying. You thought I was drunk. Funny story. Remember that one? And, and then uh, you promised that I would have a child. Well, this is the answer to the prayer. Here's the child. He's here to serve the Lord. I've given him back. And then she leaves him. She goes home. Now, I know it's every parent's dream, at least at certain points in, in, in certain circumstances, that you just wish in your mind, I wish I could just take this kid somewhere else uh, for a while and let them raise him. Well, she gets to do this. Uh, in this moment, she leaves her son and goes back home. And we don't know how often they visited. We do know that she came every year. And here in a while, we'll see that she brought a change of clothes but, uh, uh, every year to, to him. But he's now being raised by the high priest Eli and possibly Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. In response to the goodness of Yahweh, Hannah offers this song of praise before she returns home. Verse 21 actually reveals to us that she has more children. God blesses her. Uh, she has uh, three sons and two daughters. And, and Karen read for us at the beginning of the service Hannah's praise, this prayer of praise that she offers. Beautiful. One of the things that's really unique about this prayer that she offers is it really is kind of a doorway entry into the book of 1 Samuel. Many of the things that Hannah prays, we will see come to life and fruition in the life of Saul and in the life of David. Uh, it's, it's in a sense a table of contents for us with what we're going to see in this particular book. Well then in 2.12 the author makes a very sharp turn. <laughs> So you go from Hannah, who's offering this praise to God uh, for all that he's done. You go from Samuel now being dropped off as, as a servant for the Lord. And that really moves us then to discuss Eli and his sons, which is our second point. Notice verse 12, because it really says it all. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And that's bad enough, right? The sons of Eli were worthless men. Notice what it says next. They did not know Yahweh. They're priests. The sons of the high priest, the ones who would naturally be in succession to be the next high priest, they're serving at the tabernacle every day claiming to represent God, to be this mediator between the people and God, and they do not know the Lord. And the text goes on to describe how they would steal from the worshipers. They would bring their, their meat offerings and they would offer them. And, and the, the, though the priests were able to take portions of that, they would take extra from that. They stole from Yahweh because they would take of the meat before the fat had burned off, according to the law. They were thieves. They were reckless. And just, like, just when it seems we can't really take any more about Hophni and Phinehas and their wickedness, in verse 18 he flips, the author flips this back around and reminds us, at the same time Hophni and Phinehas are stealing food, here's Samuel ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. His mom would bring him those change of clothes. Notice verse 21, it says this, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. 
So the author interjects, got Hophni and Phinehas doing this. Now look at Samuel. And now we go back to Hophni and Phinehas again. Notice verse 22. There's no doubt that over the years, Eli had heard uh, plenty of people talking about his sons. He had observed his sons in their acts of wickedness, their corruption firsthand. And finally, in his old age, he continues to hear these stories about his sons, not just stealing from the offerings that are offered to Yahweh, but having uh, inappropriate sexual relationships with the young women who would serve at the tabernacle. And in a moment, he, he loses it. He rebukes his sons for what they have done. But look at verse 25. They would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. It was too little too late for Eli's sons. It seems from the text that, that Eli had failed them long before this, this particular moment. For, for years he had overlooked the abuse of his sons, their abusive ministry to the people. And therefore for years what Eli had done is he had honored his sons above Yahweh. He had chosen time and time again to let his sons get by with their abominable practices at the expense of Yahweh. What does it mean when it says it was the will of the Lord to put them to death? Well, it means exactly what you think it means. Yahweh is going to kill these two priests. But once again, notice the author's contrasting comment regarding Samuel, now verse 26. We're back to him again. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in statue and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Those verses sound familiar to you? Those are, the, those are the words that the gospel writer would choose to describe Jesus as he would grow in favor with God and with man. We have this back and forth. Samuel seems to be kind of taking off and Eli and his sons crashing down. And the author puts these in juxtapose time and time again. Look at Hopney and Phineas. Look at Samuel. Look at Hopney and Phineas. Look at Samuel. Trying to help us to see what's happening in Israel. Even amidst all of their evil in Shiloh, there is, I love this point, there's, there's hope in the quiet service of a young boy. He's just going about the business of serving the Lord and ministering. And so, be faithful in your quiet service. <laughs> you never know what God is going to do through those things. Well, chapter 2 culminates with the appearance of an unnamed man of God who shows up at Shiloh and he pronounces judgment on Eli and on his household for the failures and the wickedness of his sons. But the prophecy, uh, which we don't have time to read in its entirety, doesn't leave Israel or us, the readers, without hope. So I do want to read a portion. Notice verse 34, chapter 2, verse 34. We're going to start there. It says this, And this that shall come upon your two sons, this is the, the man of God speaking to Eli, this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign for you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever 
forever. And everyone who is left in your house, Eli, shall come to implore of him, this faithful priest, for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and will say this, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Eli, your family will come to nothing. Over the following years, the descendants of Eli would die prematurely. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 22. And finally, during the reign of Solomon, they would be absolutely and finally cut off from the priesthood. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2. It's not the kind of prophecy that Eli would want to hear. <laughs> and it would seem that even in that moment, he, he somewhat dismisses what's said and time marches on. And so with all that background, we get to really the crux of what I wanted to get to today, and that is, that is chapter 3. And so please follow along as we look at chapter 3 together, Samuel's submission. It says this, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. That was the lamp that burned throughout the night. So it was early in the morning, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and he laid down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel rose up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you, my son. Lie down again. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so Samuel went, and he lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and calling, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hear it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. And therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And Samuel lay until morning. And then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me, all that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew. And the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. 
And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The fact that the word of the Lord, as chapter 3 opens, is described as rare. It was rare in those days. It's a sign of God's judgment upon Eli, his sons, really the whole nation of Israel. Amos writes this in Amos uh, chapter, uh, I believe, verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. And it's not going to be a famine of bread or for thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. They'll wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They'll run to and fro and to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God is judging His people by a famine of His own life-giving, life-changing words. But despite the famine of the word, things are changing in Israel here in 1 Samuel chapter 3. In the early morning hours before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel, who is sleeping in the tent that houses the Ark of the Covenant, he hears somebody call his name. He immediately jumps to think that it's Eli needing something, and so he runs and says, here I am. Eli says, I didn't call for you. Go back to bed. This plays out a couple of times, but there's a statement that's made here in the middle that, that says this, that Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, certainly Samuel knew of Yahweh. He just didn't have a personal connection, personal relationship with him yet. All he knew were the stories of Yahweh's faithfulness. So after the third time of him going to Eli, Eli begins to wise up and says, I think... I think Yahweh is speaking to you. Next time, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so it plays out. Verse 10 reads, The Lord came and stood calling as another time, Samuel, Samuel, to which Samuel responded, Speak, for your servant hears. And what happens next would change the course of Israel's history. You may think that's a drastic statement to make, but that's exactly what Yahweh says. He says, I'm about to do a thing that will make every man's ears tingle. Something significant. What is the significant thing? The high priest Eli and his household will be destroyed and judged. I don't know if you've ever had bad news to share with somebody, but it's never a pleasant thing to do. I remember uh, when I was a junior in high school, we'd been on a youth activity. We pulled back into the church that night, and my pastor's wife was standing there, and uh, as soon as our youth worker got out, the pastor's wife was talking to her, and we were all just piling out of the van. And uh, my, my youth leader came to me after that, and he said, Hey, I've got some news to share with you. Your cousin was killed tonight in an accident. I remember that event. I guarantee you he remembers that event too, because that's never the news you want to share with somebody. But Samuel, a young boy a newly ordained prophet of the Lord now, is called upon to share some devastating news with Eli. And I can see him trying to avoid it and avoid Eli for the first part of the day. Eli comes to him and says, you need to tell me what the Lord said. And so he tells him everything that the Lord said. And I'm amazed. I don't know if you noticed it. I'm amazed at Eli's response to this. 
It's a response of, of faith that he gives to this word that your house is done. What does he say? It is Yahweh. Let him, let him do what is good according to him. He knows what he's doing in a sense is what Eli's saying. Man, if I could say that when I'm stuck in traffic, that'd be great. He's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Or when I'm in a fight with somebody, let him do what seems good to him. Just recognizing the sovereignty of God in those particular circumstances. Well, the chapter ends with a word about the growing and well-known ministry of Samuel. How the word of the Lord is now returned to Israel. It began by saying what? The word of the Lord was rare in those days. But by the end of the chapter, as Samuel's ministry has, has taken over and Eli's begins to diminish... We see that Yahweh is speaking once again. Incredible. Incredible. Quite a story, quite a lot of information, a lot of people that I introduce you to this morning. Uh, but what difference does it make? I want to give you just uh, three points that we can consider today. Points not about Hannah, not about Samuel. Points about Yahweh. Points about our God to consider. First of all is this. Consider the gracious God who hears Hannah's desperate pleas. Consider the gracious God who hears Hannah's desperate pleas. To be sure, Hannah was relentless in her prayers. Full transparency, I am nothing like Hannah. There are things that come up in my life where I feel a desperation for, and I'll, I'll dig into prayer, and I may give it a few days, but it very quickly subsides. Hannah continued in her desperation. So let me ask you this pressing question this morning. What are you desperate to see God do? Hannah wanted a son. She wanted a child. What is it you're desperate to see God do? Now I'm not going to step in like Eli when you say, this is what I'm desperate to see God do and say, hey, the Lord will grant you what you have a desire to see. I don't have that prerogative. I'm not a high priest. But I can tell you this, that God welcomes your desperation. He welcomes it. God invites the desperate. God is glorified when the desperate come to Him. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God invites the desperate to come with confidence and boldness to get the grace that you need to make it through your circumstances. There's another great description that's given in Psalm 56 revealing God's tender concern for us. It says this, you, God, have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows when you're flipping over in bed like a pancake because you just can't sleep. Because the circumstances of life are weighing on you. He sees the tears. He knows the tears. He keeps the tears. So let me repeat the question. What are you desperate to see God do? Maybe you know somebody, a friend, a family member who's struggling with addiction. You're desperate to see God work in their circumstances. Maybe it's a job situation. 
a relationship situation, a friend or family member that, that you know and you love and you want to see them come to Christ. You can see the destructive path of their life and you're desperate to see God work. It's revival. You want to see revival in, in, our, in our community, in your own family, in our church, across the globe. Personally, I'm desperate for a better a better vision, a clearer vision, a bigger vision for what Christ wants for this, His church, right here, Metaphew. I'm praying for that. So, so let's pray for those things fervently like, like crazy Hannah. I mean, Eli thought she was nuts. She was drunk. She had lost her mind. That's the kind of prayers God wants us to pray. Desperate. Second, consider the gracious God who kills Eli's sons. Now we get to talk about that story next week. We're not going to dig into that, but that comes in our next chapter. But the word was spoken already that it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And you may think, well, pastor, how can you use the term uh, gracious God and kill in the same sentence? It doesn't seem quite right. Well, it was either those two knuckleheads or all of Israel. If Hopni and Phinehas threatened to destroy God's people, then Hopni and Phinehas will be destroyed to spare God's people. Davis, a commentator, goes on to write it this way. It's a work of judgment. It's a harsh word. But it is at the same time a saving word and a merciful word. A protecting word for the people of God. If the true church is to be preserved, her false servants must be removed. Hence, this is the merciful meddling of God's word. If Hophni and Phinehas were allowed to continue, they would have drug all of Israel into their abominable practices. And it was a saving work of God to eliminate them so that Israel could come back to Him. I, just, I want to briefly comment, just thinking through the New Testament, thinking through our particular setting today, this is the importance of church discipline according to 1 Corinthians 5. This is why Paul says to the Corinthian church, you've got this guy in blatant and rebellious sexual immorality that's a part of your church. You have to get rid of him. You've got to cut the leaven out or the leaven will affect the whole lump. It's done to save the church, not in judgment but in mercy, depending on your perspective. There's a lot more I could say about that, but I won't. Let's get to the third point. It's a gracious God who speaks through Samuel. That phrase that opens up chapter 3, that it was uh, rare for the word of the Lord to be spoken in that day, that's a pretty haunting phrase. Especially for a pastor. Because I love the word of the Lord. I love to proclaim the word of the Lord. But to think that the word of the Lord was rare in those particular days. Amos describing it as a famine. Uh, without it we dehydrate. Without it we starve. Proverbs 29.18 says it this way. Where there is no vision or prophetic word from the Lord, the people cast off restraint or they perish. We need to hear from God. In His grace, as He's done time and time again, Yahweh raises up another prophet. It was Moses, right? A prophet. Joshua, the judges, and now Samuel. And in time, it would be the greatest prophet of all, Jesus Himself, who would come. Now some are going to argue, as I initially did, we don't have to worry about that. I mean, 
a drought of God's Word, God's Word being rare, we've, we've got it right here, 66 books. We can hold it in our hand. But Dale Ralph, Dale Ralph Davis describes it this way and lays down some fresh conviction. I want to read what he says. He says, One caution some may think, Yes, but the Word of God can't be rare anymore because now the church has the complete Word in writing. We have the Scriptures. So we don't need to worry about that. Wrong. What makes the Word of Yahweh rare? When Eli's day, it was because Yahweh was not giving it frequently, but Yahweh's Word can become rare because of problems on the receiving end. Several years ago, Davis writes, I couldn't get rid of the water in my head. My ears, it seemed, wouldn't clear. The fluid in my ear canals or wherever just stayed there, sloshed around a little, reduced my hearing capacity, stirred up my innate irritability. Our friendly doctor hooked me up with some kind of pump or apparatus. You would be aghast at the gunk that can collect in one's head very slowly over years and years until hearing is drastically reduced. That is how the Word of God still becomes rare. People have no ears to hear. In fact, even the ability to hear must be a divine gift. We may have the Scriptures but suffer from deafness, and so the Word is rare. Starvation may not come from absence of food, but from lack of appetite. We need to be like Jeremiah, who feasted on the Word of God. He says this, Your words were found. These are Jeremiah's words. Your words were found. I ate them, and your words became to me a joy, a delight of my heart. It's no accident as you move into the New Testament that Peter encourages us to drink the milk of the Word, referencing it as something of, of substance and food. And the author of Hebrews chastises the readers and says, you should be eating the meat and the solid food now, but you're still just drinking the milk. So the question I ask you today is, are you reading? Are you meditating? Are you hungering for the Word of God in your homes? As you move throughout the days of your week, are you participating in, in the life of the church and consistently being fed the Word from your pastor? That's, that's me. It's my job to feed the flock, to take you to the Scriptures. Wednesday nights is an opportunity for that as well. For our kids, it's a wana, it's our kids' classes downstairs. And the question is not so much, will you, will you show up and listen to the Word of God and hear the Word of God? It's, will you do it? What will you do with the Word of God? I have no doubt that there were prophets who even in Eli's day, in Samuel's day, they were going out and they were saying, here's the Word of Yahweh. And people would say, oh yeah, good. And then they would go on about their life. No difference. Same is true today. James 1 captures that so well. If anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who goes and he looks intently at his face in the mirror. And he looks at himself and he goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's not enough, Metaview, for us to look at the Word of God and say, oh, that's nice, I see, I see where it says this, and I see what I look like, and then just walk away and forget. We have to do, we have to change. Let's take it one step further. Tim Chester says it this way, if God's Word is rare today, it's because people will not listen and Christians will not 
speak. It's our job to to speak the Word of God. It's our job to share the truth of Christ and the hope of Christ with other people. The proclamation of the Word. The proclamation of the Word, sermons, teaching. That has been a focus here at Meadowview for years and years. And I do believe that That is the reason we are in the healthy position, healthy spiritual position that we're in in this present state of ministry. And it has to remain central. We can't lose sight of the the importance of the Word of God and get distracted by our own preferences, by our own sin, by a ministry, any other thing. The Word of God must remain central. Because without that, we've got nothing. We have nothing but our own devices to guide us. Last week, that was a focus in the Get Wisdom. Josh challenged us particularly that we get wisdom by getting in the Word of God. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. Christ is doing something extraordinary here. And I am grateful for that. And I hope and pray that He's doing extraordinary things in your life as an individual, in your family. And so today, let's let our prayer be this. Echo Samuel, speak for your servant hears. Speak. But I have one more thing I have to mention. I want to put all these together for you. Eli, his sons, imperfect priests. They couldn't do it. So the promise in 2.35 is this, that Yahweh is going to raise up for Himself a faithful priest. Somebody who will do His heart. Yahweh's heart will be reflected in the actions of this priest. And we're tempted in this moment of time to think, that's Samuel. That's who he's talking about. But you know what? Samuel would fail. Samuel's sons would end up just like Hophni and Phinehas. And then others stretch it a little bit further into the future and say, well, it's the the priesthood of Zadok. That's who David and Solomon appointed uh, during their reign. And they they were righteous and they were holy. But no, we have to look beyond that as well. This reference to the faithful priest that would come is a word of prophecy that looks beyond Samuel, looks beyond Zadok, looks beyond Caiaphas in Jesus' day, even beyond the tribe of Levi to the tribe of Judah to one particular man. His name? Jesus, the faithful high priest. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 944. Hebrews chapter 7. I want you to see this. Nine forty-four pew Bible. Hebrews 7 verse 23 is where I'm going to start reading. Hebrews 7.23 says this, The former priests, like Eli, his sons, they were many in number because they were, all, they were prevented by death for continuing office. Eli died. Hophni Phinehas died. But he, speaking of Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He conquered death. 
And consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The faithful high priest is Jesus. Eli's family and lineage would fail. Samuel's would fail. But Jesus would not. Like Samuel, Jesus came proclaiming the Word. He, in fact, was the Word who put on flesh. Jesus, who was the Word, would come. But not only does He intercede for us, as we just read, but He understands us. And it's with that understanding that He invites us to come in desperation. It's with that understanding that He invites us to pray, Speak, Lord. For your servant hears. Hmm. Hebrews 4, if you want to flip back a few pages. Verse 14, some of this we read just a moment ago. Hebrews 4.14 Let these words encourage your heart today. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, and find grace to help in our time of need. Friends, today I encourage you to draw near. Draw near to the Savior. Fall at His feet, the one who saves, the one who invites, the one who understands our struggle. And just say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What do you have?